Has this ever happened to you? You're listening to that colleague who irks you and you feel yourself getting miffed. Your jaw clenches up, your nostrils flare. Any minute now, the fit will hit the shan. And inside, you feel like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. But outside, you inhale sharply, put on a tight smile, and push the anger down like you always do. Because anger is messy and destructive and unacceptable, right? Your dentist might have recently mentioned that you've been grinding your teeth to little wee nubs at night, and maybe your blood pressure is up. I've learned that unfelt feelings always find a way to express themselves. So many of us have been raised not knowing how to relate to our anger. It's this big emotion that can feel so out of control. And maybe you grew up in an environment where you were punished for expressing big emotions. But here's the thing. If feelings must be felt eventually, how can you learn to do that in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're going to go nuclear? Our guest is Dr. Carolyn Boyd, chartered clinical psychologist and author who frequently features in the press. Carolyn specializes in supporting parents, especially moms, with anger and anxiety. Today, we're talking more generally about anger, how it builds up, why it can feel so scary, and how to create a new way of relating to it so you no longer need to push it down in day-to-day life. I've also been trialing some of Carolyn's techniques, and I'm going to share how I've been getting on with that. Before we kick off, welcome to Enough, the podcast, a show for high achievers whose lives look shiny and impressive on the outside, but there's a lot going on underneath. Maybe you're bored in your job or you're burnt out. Maybe you're trying to fill a hole deep inside with all of your stellar achievements, but no matter what you do, it still never feels enough. I feel you because I've been there too. Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. I'm really glad you're here. So back to anger. Surely if we're controlled and evolved enough, we can push anger down and it'll somehow magically disintegrate or biodegrade and turn into uh, compost, right? I'm afraid not. I drop us into the conversation where Carolyn explains that anger is actually a multi-layered thing, and how we deal with it starts young. Let's dive in. If we talk to kind of the layers one by one, one of them, you know, for, for some of the women I work with, the, the drive to succeed and to do things perfectly and to get it right, you know, comes from messages that they learned very early on growing up and so we're talking about attachment and how they were responded to repeatedly in not good enough ways by their parents and this isn't about blame you know their parents were doing the best that they could at the time so it's not about blame but it's just understanding that these are women who as little girls when you know when they did show big emotions like anger it was punished and they were shamed for it or they were just shut down so they learned quite quickly that they shouldn't make a fuss and they should keep quiet and they need to be good so 
here I'm speaking to the good girl narratives that we internalize. And, and so this in part can be from our, our parents or our primary caregivers, whoever was, you know, looking after us growing up. And it may be that we weren't necessarily punished or shamed for big emotions like anger, but that we witnessed a lot of conflicts and our parents showed anger and we witnessed that in a scary and unpredictable way, but we weren't allowed to, to show that emotion. And, and so it becomes, that conflict becomes very attached with fear. So the, just the other um, pattern that I sometimes notice um, for in terms of our experiences growing up is that maybe anger wasn't modeled at all. And, and actually what we, what we saw or what we actually picked up on was tension. But, but our parents didn't feel they were allowed to show their anger. And, and so we never saw it. And so again, it's, it becomes, this, you know, something associated with confusion and fear. And so when it does, of course, show up for us, because it's a very basic human emotion, it feels very scary. And, and so we suppress it. So, so that's an important layer in terms of the being, I would say kind of not being contained enough in our big feelings or understood in our feelings or witnessing anger in a scary, unpredictable way growing up. And, and then there's the other layer, which is the messages that we learn from culture. So from the space around us. And again, the good girl narrative really plays in here where it, it's um, anger is an emotion that women are socialized to suppress. And I would say that is still the case. I, you know, despite there being more awareness and more being written about female anger, you know, we're still reading from the Me Too movement, from Sarah Everard's murder by a, a, police of, a policeman, and the experience of women and particularly mothers feeling thrust back into the, the, the role of the 1950s housewife in the pandemic. So there's more awareness about female rage. However, what I notice is that women are still being socialized to squash it. Okay, quick recap. Caroline has linked the discomfort around anger with fear, so much of which comes from our early lives. And then there's this additional layer of complexity around women and anger with all of that good girl conditioning. If you want more on this angle, Caroline recommends Soraya Kamali's TED Talk, which is linked in the show notes. Really worth watching. In a moment, Caroline's going to refer to the concept of flipping your lid. I love that phrase. That's a concept from Dr. Dan Siegel, who's a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA. So flipping your lid is what happens in the brain in those two to three seconds, wherein we go from being reasonable in a situation to absolutely losing our shiz. And that flip is remarkably quick. Okay, so we've heard from Caroline where some of those behavior patterns might have come from in childhood. So we're moving now to what's actually happening in the brain and the body when the anger starts to build and our lid is about to flip. When we talk about someone flipping their lid, it's when the emotional part of our brain, which is the amygdala, which is like the fear center, becomes disconnected from 
the prefrontal cortex, which is this bit behind our forehead. And the prefrontal cortex, I also refer to this as the thinking brain. The thinking brain is responsible for things like decision-making, impulse control, empathy. So when our emotional brain takes over and we become hijacked by it, which is what happens when we flip our lid, we're not able to manage our impulses and, and feel in control or bring the perspective because we just can't think clearly or bring empathy for ourselves or the person in front of us. So, so that's what happens in our brain and fight, flight, freeze gets activated. It's the fight part of, of the fight, flight, freeze, flooding our body with adrenaline and cortisol. And that's why anger feels so physical. It's a, it's a really energizing emotion, unlike sadness. And, and it feels very, you know, in, in that moment, we feel a real sense of self-righteousness. You know, we feel we are right and we feel like we must act now and we have an illusion of power. And so it can make us feel powerful. But obviously when, when we've gone into flipping our lid, we're not able to, to think clearly in that moment and to mother in the way that we want to. So it's really important to understand, I guess, the social costs of flipping our lids and, and showing anger so readily. And when we notice we're getting into that pattern a lot, then, and you know, there's lots of provocations and understandable triggers being a mum or being, you know, just perhaps you, you're not a mum yet, but you have all sorts of experiences where you feel belittled or put down or you feel a sense of injustice perhaps at work and that anger maybe initially you suppress it um, and then it all comes spilling out so if we do notice that rage is showing up a lot then i would really encourage your listeners to speak with their gp and and to explore you know what local support is available whether that's psychological support or local peer support, or perhaps accessing a private therapist, because it can be so helpful to understand more about the internal process and what's going on in that very hot moment. Over the past few months, I've been road testing a method I learned from Dr. Andrew Huberman, Stanford professor and host of the Huberman Lab podcast. It is called the physiological sigh. Whenever I feel irked or vexed or even downright angry, and when I remember, that's key, I take two consecutive inhales through the nose. So the first is a long in-breath through the nose, and the second in-breath is like a little top-up. So those two inhales stacked on top of each other. And the point of that is to maximally inflate the lungs. And then there's a long exhale through the mouth to empty the lungs all the way. So the point of this, Dr. Huberman says, is to lower autonomic arousal. 
There's this scheme here in the UK where previously incarcerated people are on-ramped back into the workforce and they go door to door selling items from a big duffel bag, sponges, dusters, that kind of thing. So last week, one of these guys came to our door and started to do his pitch, but it wasn't the right moment. I was on a call and we don't do sales at the door. So though he was kindly and respectfully turned away, As he was leaving, he kicked and broke our gate on the way out, and it was just kind of hanging and dangling there. A part even broke off. And when I saw that, I felt anger sprouting up. That was totally uncalled for and unfair, I thought, (laughs) along with a few other choice words. I noticed how tight I was, my jaw, my shoulders, my belly. And then, aha, I thought about the physiological sigh, which I did probably about three or four times. The result... I have to say, I felt less crusty. I felt more grounded, which was good since I was just about to start a coaching call. So give the psychological sigh a try. Two in breaths through the nose, the first one deep, the second a quick top up, and then a long exhale through the mouth to empty the lungs. So I drop us back into the conversation now where Carolyn shares why we need to turn towards fear. Sounds unintuitive. Hmm. I guess the first part is really understanding the function of anger. You know, what what is that emotion? Why do we have it as human beings? And actually, our anger is telling us to make a change. So we need to learn to listen to it. So in the day-to-day, this means developing a practice to check in with yourself. You know, it's, it's quite simple, but it's hard to do throughout any given day, just monitoring your capacity. You know, I often use the analogy of a capacity cup, you know, how full is your cup? Is it about to spill over as in, are you reaching the point where you, you might flip your lid? Are you reaching your limit? Because we all have limits and, and, and these limits that we have are all individual to us in terms of our own, you know, shaped by our own unique life experiences. So we need to get to know what our, where, where our limits lie. So it's about placing a hand on your heart and asking yourself, just pausing, you know, getting out of your drive system, which is what I refer to it, where you're just doing, 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 and that can be great for getting a sense of validation for, and uh, you know building our self-esteem but if we overactivate our drive system we become very burnt out and then we it becomes quite ma- mindless so pause how am i feeling and noticing ang- signs that anger is rising do you have a really tight jaw it's where a lot of our tension gets stored i know it does for me Am I getting caught in spirals of blame? Am I all in my head with it? Uh, Am I becoming more shouty, sweary, snappy? Like, what does my behavior look like? And the thing about anger is that when we're faced with our own anger or someone else's, what do we want to do? So what I mean is if someone is anxious, we want to reassure them. If someone is upset and tearful, we want to comfort them. With anger, we want to get away. So, you know, and again, if it's at our own anger, that's where we can, you know, we're suppressing it, but we're also putting up the wall. 
you know, anger is scary and I don't want that. That's, that's not me, that's separate to me. But the thing is, if we can begin to turn towards our anger with compassion, we can dig deeper and be curious about this vulnerable part of ourselves and then the feelings underneath. So anger, we know it can mask fear and anxiety. So for a lot of the people I, I work with, it's about not getting it right as a mum. It might be not getting it right in the work environment, not being good enough, feeling that you have to constantly push, push, push. Um, it could also be fear of losing control underneath that anger, as I was saying earlier, and acting it out in a way that you really don't want to. And it can also mask grief. So there's quite a lot of feelings that can lie beneath that anger. And once we can turn towards those and focus inwards, we can bring that compassion and start to actually identify our unmet needs. And the needs, you know, anger could be a sign that we need to draw a line in the sand if we're being treated unfairly and just say no, enough. Anger can be a sign that we need extra support so that could be asserting our needs to a, to a partner, if we have one, to get that support. Or it could be, as I was saying, speaking with your GP or a therapist or a friend, a supportive friend. So there's something about acknowledging this, this anger is a part of me, but it does not define me. And how can I bring compassion to this part of me that perhaps for some is so bound up with Fear. I'm interpreting these gems from Carolyn as viewing anger as a messenger. Perhaps there's been a boundary violation or an unmet need. Anger's the signal. Oi, pay attention. Do something to rectify this. We're getting all those brain chemicals to take action. That's the clue. Anger has this urgency. In their book, Burnout, Solve Your Stress Cycle, Emilia and Emily Nagoski say that we're taught to fear rage and anger because its power can be used as a weapon. Then again, so can a kitchen knife, which can incidentally also be used for good. The Nagoski sisters discuss the importance of completing a stress cycle by letting anger out of our bodies once we feel it. So get it out of your system. I remember the sheer delight of going to a driving range after a particularly challenging day many years ago. I was a different woman after a bucket of golf balls. Sidebar, I recently read an article in The Guardian about rage rooms. Mm -hmm. A place where you book a room, don a boiler suit and protective headgear, and then with a baseball bat, I think it was, you break things for an hour. I'm not um, sure how I feel about this, but the link is in the show notes if you want to read more. So recap, anger is a messenger. Check in with yourself and then find a way to let this stress cycle complete itself in the body by actively managing it. Do something active. So Carolyn, how do we do that? We don't always have access to a driving range or a rage room. In the moment where you can feel the lava rising and the, it feels like, you know, volcanic in your body, there is a lot going on in your body. That's the first thing to say. And again that's where sort of understanding the physical nature of the reaction with anger is really helpful but if you and if you've got to that point then i think it's also helpful to know that anger 
triggers our internal alarm system. So as I was saying, it floods our body with, with stress hormones and it primes us to react. And what our, our brain is telling our body is, I'm not safe. I need to prepare for action now. And so whether it's 10, 20 star jumps or running on the spot, what this movement does is it allows us to release from that threat activated con contraction because fight and flight is meant to be followed by a burst of activity. And when we move our body in running, jumping, whatever it is, it then signals to the brain, the danger is now over, you've survived, your system can now switch off. Okay, so I'm out in the field, it's Friday, and I'm leaving myself a voice note because I got a text from a family member that made me angry and reactive. So the win was that I noticed, I got all tight and I wanted to jump into fix it mode, but sometimes family situations, especially with extended family are delicate. So I'm noticing, I'm tight, that's the win, but I'm in between client meetings, I'm out in London, I have heels on, I'm not busting out any star jumps in this getup and I'm out in public. So I'm not sure what I can do. Carolyn, can you give us an alternative when we're out in the field and we can't do something that physical? What can we do then? So with dropping the anchor, it's again, very simple. And if you're noticing that the lava rising in your body, you can just shake your hands up in the air, you know, just do it. You might feel a bit silly doing it, but you just do it. So I'm doing it now, just shaking my hands up in the air and doing that for about five seconds and then letting them fall onto your lap. And then you're, you then just direct your attention. What does it feel like in your, in your hands, in your body? What are the sensations that you can feel in your hands resting? on your legs, really tuning into that. And then once you've done that, can you tune into your feet on the floor and feeling the, the energy of your feet connected to the, the ground beneath you, really tuning into feeling that connection between you and the floor beneath you. And that is very grounding. And we know that exercise helps to ground us in the moment in our body, as well as redirecting attention away a bit so that's something else that that you can try and then when you've done that trying to kind of switch activity just doing something else try to get a bit of space on your own you know if you can't do that open a window and just breathe in the air some people just they might open the front door but if you can get outside and you can just go for a walk on your own, that is going to be a way of dampening down that reactivity. And for some people, journaling is incredibly helpful. And there's something very therapeutic about the, the physical act of writing. And so just writing it out helps release the angry tension. It also helps to you to find meaning so rather than it all being a, a kind of jumble in your mind you can find meaning and help and it helps make sense of your thoughts and your feelings when you get it down on paper 
Voice note check-in, I'm a week in and I'm much better at noticing the anger rising day to day and getting it out of my system with some kind of physical movement. The shake-off thing with the hands, that's a good one. I can usually find a way to do that. If not, a session on the treadmill or weights later that day seems to work. I'm also noticing that getting outside ASAP after a tough moment, super helpful. Uh, Epic fail on the journaling, but progress over perfection. That's the key here, progress over perfection. I forgot the physiological sigh for days, and then I started it again. I've found the noticing the most challenging part, especially since anger is so instantaneous. And then when I've noticed it, and I've cooled down after using my body to let anger out, I found it incredibly helpful to reflect on what message anger is trying to give me. Is there a boundary fail here? Am I frustrated with myself because I didn't set the boundary? Is there an action I need to take, a conversation that needs having, a need that isn't being met? The taking action on the findings of that, well, that part is still a work in progress, but it's the being curious about what's happening here that is really changing the game. And when I do this, I notice that anger isn't as scary as I thought. Actually, it can be quite galvanizing. Carolyn is going to leave us with a brick of wisdom. Actually, there's a couple here. The more that we can actually turn towards it and get in touch with it, we can, you know, ask ourselves, what is it trying to tell me? And actually, you know, if someone is experiencing really poor treatment at work, not feeling valued, feeling put down, then actually that anger can be used as a, a vehicle for change. And when someone, you know, what I notice is that when people can get in touch with the anger and understand what's underneath and what that anger is, is telling them, they can get in touch with those unmet needs. And, and what, you know, those needs might be to actually to make a change at work or to perhaps to voice their needs to someone to make, to make that change possible. A few more days into these practices, and I'm seeing the payoff of not letting these things build up. Anger messenger pops up. Aha, I notice and get curious about the message. Then I have a proactive conversation to sort what needs sorting. And it's not always that easy, but there's something to not stewing and pushing things down. I really hope you found today's conversation helpful and practical, which is always the aim here. All of Carolyn's details, including her book and her upcoming courses are on her website, drcarolineboyd.com, which is also in the show notes. One request before you head back into your day, if you enjoyed today's pod and want more, please hit the follow button before you leave Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It not only helps me, but it means you never miss an episode. I've got an incredible one lined up for you next time. And if you didn't catch it, go back and hear me and Stanford professor, Dr. Anna Lemke, talking about work addiction in the previous episode. As ever, thanks so much for listening. Let's do this all again in two weeks.